Our reading today is from 1 Peter, chapter 4, verses 1 to 11. Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude, because he who has suffered in his body is done with sin. As a result, he does not live the rest of his earthly life for human desires, but rather for the will of God. For you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. They think it strange that you do not plunge with them into the same flood of dissipation, and they heap abuse on you. But they will have to give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is the reason the gospel was preached, even to those who are now dead, so that they might be judged according to men in regard to the body, but live according to God in regard to the spirit. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be clear-minded and self-controlled so that you can pray. Above all, love each other deeply, because love covers over a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each one should use whatever gift he has received to serve others, faithfully administering God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, he should do, do it as one speaking the very words of God. If anyone serves, he should do it with the strength God provides so that in all things God be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. Good morning. My name's David. I'm part of the leadership team here at Dorchester Community Church. Thank you, Ali and the worship group for leading us in our worship and Mark and Jane for bringing us our prayers. Wasn't that a great hymn we just sang? What pertinent words for the time that we are living in. Pertinent as well, I feel, for this book that we've been looking at over the last few weeks. Those of you who have been joining with us, uh, whether online or in person over the last few weeks, will know that we've been looking at this book of 1 Peter, this little letter we find right at the end of the New Testament. And as we have, we've been looking at it over the, with the uh, title for the series has been Living Hope. And it's interesting, the guy who was talking in that video said, but we hope in Jesus, didn't he? Our theme this morning, our title for this morning is, I think I'm a bit different. Perhaps you've heard someone say that to you. Well, you know, the trouble is, I, I just think I'm a bit different to everybody else. And Probably if you're like me, you'll have felt that at some point in your life as well. 1 Peter is a letter written to a group of churches in preparation for the onslaught of suffering and persecution. But it is chiefly a letter of hope. More specifically, is a letter on how to keep sight of the living hope we have in Jesus when suffering comes our way. More especially when that suffering is because of what we believe about Jesus. Uh, 
along with Peter's sort of twin themes of hope and suffering, he also offers a lot of practical advice. And most of that advice is rooted in the concept of having the right attitudes, the right outlook as part of the family of God. And in chapters 2 and 3 that we've looked at over the last few weeks, Peter talks at length about the importance of the lifestyle that we lead. In chapter 2, he says, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that, though they accuse you of wrongdoing, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the way on the day he visits. And that really is what drives Peter's thinking for the rest of this letter. We, as God's people, need to be different. We need to look different. We need to act differently. We need to think differently. We need to talk differently to those around us. Especially when they treat us in a way that is less than fair because of what we believe. And I guess the thinking that drives Peter's writing through the rest of uh, chapters 2 and 3, if there's a word that you could use to sum it up, it is humility. Whatever our role, whatever our station in life, we should treat people around us with the respect they deserve and frequently with the respect they don't deserve. When we come to chapter 4, which Leslie read for us this morning, we have a title in the NIV. The NIV um, puts titles at the beginning of the paragraphs very often. They're not scripture, they're not God-spired, they're not not God-breathed, but they are sometimes useful, sometimes less than useful. The one we have here is very useful because it calls it living for God. Living for God. And I think it introduces us to a consideration that the aged Pastor Peter, writing in Rome to this group of churches, uh, had uh, a consideration that had become very important in Peter's mind. It's a consideration that, to all of us, is more or less important. And that is the consideration of time. The aged Pastor Peter, writing... I think, sees what is going on around him in Rome. He discerns a sea change in the persecution that is being levelled at the Christian church. He thinks back to those words that Jesus had to him just before Jesus ascended into heaven, the prediction that he gave Peter concerning his own death. And he realises, I think, it's not long before his belief in Jesus will cost him his life. Time, all of a sudden, has become very important to Peter as he writes to this church. And in chapter 4 here, Peter talks about three aspects of time which we need to think about. He talks about, first of all, the time now, the time for change. He then talks about the time in the past, the time you spent, he says, And then he talks about what should the future look like. First of all, Peter talks about now, the time for change. In the last half of chapter 3 that Jonathan brought us last week, 
Peter talks at length about the suffering and the death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And in the beginning of chapter 4, he carries on that theme. Therefore, since Christ suffered in the body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude. You know, the suffering of Jesus is not something that we should think about perhaps when we've just taken communion as we have or maybe when we go to a Good Friday devotional service. Peter says it is something that should control and, uh, and drive our thinking on a day-to-day basis. Peter says the suffering of Jesus should cause us to arm ourselves with the same attitude. That is not genteel talk. That is not diplomatic talk. This is fighting talk, military talk. Our stance towards sin, Peter says, because of Jesus' suffering, should be a militant stance. The attitude we should arm ourselves with is not some sort of benign philosophy, not an abstract set of ideas, Peter says we should arm ourselves with the same attitude that Jesus had as he faced suffering. What was Jesus' attitude as he faced suffering? And why should it make a difference to us? I would suggest his attitude was the intention that God had to deal with sin through Jesus suffering. Peter goes on and he says, because he who has suffered in his body is done with sin. Now, I don't know how you feel about that. Maybe you're sitting there thinking, well, I know I've suffered for being a Christian, but I also know it hasn't made me perfect and I've gone on and make subsequent mistakes. That's certainly been the experience of my life. What's Peter saying here? Well, I think what Peter is getting at is this. Jesus suffered and he died in order to deal with sin. Why? Because Peter put, uh, uh, Jesus put God's plans and purposes ahead of his own agenda. In fact, you could say of Jesus, Jesus had no agenda other than God's will for his life. And the reality is, of course, as Jesus hung dying on the cross, God poured out the punishment of the world on Jesus. All the mistakes, all the things that we've gone wrong, all the the regrets we have, the things we wish we'd never done, the things we wish we've never said, the punishment for all that stuff was poured out on Jesus as he died on the cross and sin was done with and I guess we can ask ourselves the question can't we when we think about Jesus suffering on the cross do we want to carry on doing the same stuff that we always do pouring out more punishment on Jesus or instead like Jesus Do we want to adopt God's plans, God's purposes, God's will, God's agenda 
to arm ourselves with the same attitude that Jesus had as he suffered. To see God's will done in his life no matter what it cost him. In which case I think we can say in our lives we have made a break with sin. We have made a break with the past and we now live our lives for God's causes, for God's will. I don't think you can ever say that suffering will stop us from doing stuff wrong. But uh, the commentator Wayne Grudem puts it like this, whoever has suffered for doing right and has still gone on to obey God in spite of the suffering involved has clearly made a break with sin. You know, Jesus didn't suffer because of bad luck. Jesus didn't suffer against his own will, but he suffered instead, understanding it was God's will for his life. He chose to obey God's will for his life. He chose to embrace it and to follow it through and to see it through to the end. And the result, yes, was suffering. You know, if Jesus had had any inclination to abandon God's plans and follow his own agenda, he could have avoided that suffering. In John chapter 10, he says, No one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. Arm yourselves, Peter says, with the same attitude that Jesus had as he suffered. Because he who has suffered in his body is done with sin. And as a result, Peter says, something changes. As a result, he does not live the rest of his earthly life for human desires, but rather for the will of God. As a result, we find we're no longer living for our own selfish ambitions, our earthly desires, but something has changed. We now live for God. All of a sudden we're starting to look a little bit different. We have different plans, different ideas, different agendas, a different set of values. Peter goes on, though, and he moves on from the time now, the time for change, and he talks about the time that we have left behind. In verse 3, he says, For you have spent enough time doing in the past... What the pagans choose to do, and what a list follows, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, detestable idolatry. Peter presents us with, I guess, two pictures of what the future can look like for us. One is a different future, a future lived for Jesus, a future that shows a clear break with the past. The other, I guess, could look very much like the past. Peter, I think, knows that the people he's writing to are very ordinary people. And they would have indulged in the same things that their friends and their neighbours and their relatives would have done. The same things that the people they met at work and in the marketplace would have done. And Peter encourages them to see that lifestyle as time that was squandered. Time that is wasted. For you have spent enough time doing what the pagans do. And by pagans, he simply means 
those that don't believe in Jesus, those around you, the ordinary people doing their ordinary things in the same old ordinary way. And what a list follows. I think as we look at a list like that, we need a little bit of perspective on it. You know, maybe you read a list with all those things and you think, or maybe you think, oh, I've missed out here. Um, Maybe you look at a list like that and you think, well, I've never done any of that stuff. Drunkenness and orgies and debauchery and I'm not even quite sure what carousing is. If anybody's got any answers, you can email me afterwards. (laughs) You know, the Bible makes it very clear. Whatever we have done or said or thought or failed to do or failed to say, we have fallen short of God's standards you know there are things that we have all got wrong and maybe you haven't done any of that stuff but maybe you've done other stuff you know the interesting thing here is that Peter doesn't anywhere suggest that perhaps some of the people he's writing to haven't indulged in these kind of things there's no well some of you have done what the pagans do a few of you have done what the pagans do although some of you are all right all of you have done what the pagans do, Peter says. I wonder what sort of life you had before you became a Christian. You know, you all look ever so holy and righteous out there. You've all got these big sort of very godly smiles on your faces and I can't believe any of you would ever do anything wrong. I don't know, maybe in the past you've lived a wild and reckless life, the sort of thing that gets into uh, tabloid newspapers. Maybe you didn't. Maybe you've always lived a mild-mannered, law-abiding sort of life, quiet. Worst thing you ever did was return a library book late. But maybe you also have lacked compassion, been judgmental. Maybe you've been legalistic. Maybe you live a box-ticking lifestyle and you have no patience with people who don't lead a box-ticking lifestyle. Maybe you've looked down your nose at people that, yes, do live a wild and reckless life, and you thought, well, I'm glad I'm not like them. You know, whichever kind of lifestyle you've lived, Peter says, you've got stuff wrong, and the time you spent doing that is enough. It's time wasted, it's time squandered, it is time to draw a line under those things and put them behind you so we change and our new lifestyle draws the admiration and respect of those around us no says Peter in fact he says they think it's strange you do not plunge with them into the same flood of dissipation and they heap abuse on you. Their response to our changed lifestyle is twofold. First of all, they can't understand it. They can't make sense of it. And secondly, they heap abuse on us. How should we respond to that kind of reaction to our different lifestyle? Well, I guess we have two options. We can either join with them in what they do, or else... We can put up with the taunts, but actually that's really hard, isn't it? It's really tough when we make a decision 
And then people look at the decision we've made and they mock us and they joke at us and they laugh at us and heap abuse on us. Why? Because the one thing we want as human beings, the one thing we look for, especially if we've had to make what uh, Sir Humphrey Appleby Appleby would call a courageous decision, i.e. what other people think of as a stupid decision, the one thing we look for is vindication. We want to be proved right. We want people to see our decisions and not think we've made a foolish decision, but for them to say, oh yes, they got it right. We want to have the last word, don't we? It's so hard, isn't it, for us to turn off the voice inside us that cries out for vindication. But you know, if we are to honour God in our lives... That is just what we have to do. It's interesting, the NIV, the phrase that the NIV uses for um, heap abuse upon you refers primarily to lies and slander. And maybe you haven't been on the receiving end of uh, um, persecution and suffering like the early church had. But I suspect most of us at some point have had to make a stand of some kind because of what we believe. And because of that, we've been at the end of mistruths, half-stories, gossip, because of the stance we've taken for Jesus. And when we get to discover those things, when we hear those sort of things which aren't really quite true, someone turning what we've said inside out and trying to say we've said something we haven't really said, when we get to hear about those things, our instinct is to come out fist flying and fighting, isn't it? Peter says, in the end, we will be vindicated. They will have to give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. You know, we won't have the final say on proving our vindication. But Peter says, God will. It's the hardest thing in the world, isn't it? To stand aside from trying to vindicate ourselves and allowing people to heap abuse on us and to say things that aren't true and uh, gossip and tell half-truths about us. R.T. Kendall, um, the great Bible teacher and uh, minister of uh, Westminster Chapel, once said there are three rules regarding self-vindication. Rule number one, don't do it. Rule number two, don't do it. Rule number three, don't do it. And Peter explains to us why we shouldn't attempt to vindicate ourselves. And that is very simply because God will vindicate us. They will have to give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is the reason the gospel was preached even to those who are now dead. So that they might be judged according to human standards in regard to the body, but live according to God in regard to the spirit. You know, one thing the Bible teaches consistently is that there will come a time when Jesus will judge the whole world, whether they've believed in him and accepted the gospel or not. 
But you know, before that happens, we as God's people will be judged by those around us. We will be judged by the world. And I guess there's two possibilities, aren't there? We can either worry about the judgment we receive now, what Peter calls in regard to the body, or we can worry about the judgment that is to come, what Peter refers to the judgment in the spirit. You know, everybody will be judged. Whether in this life they have been on the uh, giving out end of judgments or the receiving end of judgments. The question is, whose judgment do we care about? Those around us now or God's judgment in the future? Peter now turns from thinking about the time now, the time to change, and the time that is past, the time that has been squandered, to the time that is to come. What should the future look like for us as God's people? And Peter starts off in verse, uh, verse 7 by asking a question, or rather I think he begs us to ask a question. The end of all things is near. What does Peter mean when he says that? I guess as Christians, that is a sort of statement we are likely to either be very puzzled by or very excited by, and quite possibly a combination of the two. How are we to make sense of this? What difference should it make in our lives? And this is probably something that we could spend weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks looking at and not come to a conclusion. So very briefly, I want to suggest to you there is an answer there if we can discern it. Peter says, the end of all things is near. And what I think he means is something like this. We are not so much living in end times as living in the end Time. What do I mean by that? Well, we are living in the final phase of God's plan for humanity. Something that theologians call, and you may have heard this phrase before, the church age. The age that started when Jesus ascended into heaven. And you remember the disciples waited and waited in the room in Jerusalem. God sent his Holy Spirit on them and he called them and equipped them to go out and preach the gospel. And that was the point at which the early church and the church that we are now a part of was born. That was the start of the, uh, the church age. And we should see the times that we're living in now, not so much as end times, but as in the final phase of God's plan for humanity. This is the time that God has allotted for the church to tell the world what he has done through Jesus Christ. He says, you have wasted enough time doing what the pagans do. Be aware, this is now the time for the church to act. How should you behave, knowing that time is short and the time is now for you to do what God has given you to do as a mission? Well, Peter says... If the time is short and the end of all things is near, our attitude should be one of being clear-minded 
and self-controlled. Clear-minded and self-controlled. You know, that phrase that we have translated here as clear-minded in chapter 1 and in chapter 5, the NIV translates as sober-minded. There is no need for us to read something like Peter says, the end time is the time of... Uh, the, uh, t- um, the end of all things is near, and to descend into a sort of Corporal Jones-like mentality. You know, don't panic, don't panic, Mr. Mannering. It's very tempting, isn't it, to think about end times, to read a statement like that and to descend in some, into some kind of religious mania. Peter says our attitude should be exactly the opposite. The early church had expected Jesus to return at any time. And for 2,000 years, the church has expected Jesus to return at any time. Now we expect Jesus to return at any time. I am sure that in Peter's time, just as now, there were any number of people who would have looked at events happening around them and they would have looked at their newspapers if they had them in those days and they would have looked at various scriptures in various parts of the Bible and they would have confidently declared exactly when Jesus was going to return and how he was going to do it. And with the events of the last couple of weeks, that is something that is very easy to do. And they would have said, Jesus is going to return on such and such a date at such and such a time, and this is how it's going to happen. And probably if anyone had stood still for long enough, they would have told them exactly which contemporary bugbear is represented by the number 666. And again, it's not difficult to do that in the age that we're living in. Jesus tells us two very significant things about his return in the Gospels. He says, first of all, no one knows when it's going to be. Not even the Son of Man, not even Jesus himself knows when it's going to be. The only person who knows is God the Father. And the second thing he says is that we should be ready and waiting for it to happen. You know, Jesus tells a story and he likens his return to being like the guests at a wedding waiting for the groom to arrive. And the guests have waited and waited and waited. How does the groom want to find the guests to his wedding party? Bored and in a drunken stupor, sleeping, or ready, prepared, waiting? The phrase Jesus uses is properly dressed for the groom to arrive. Peter says, be sober-minded and self-controlled. The end of all things is near. And what should that lead us to? Well, Peter says very simply, it should lead us to an attitude of prayer. An attitude of prayer. Be clear-minded, self-controlled and pray. You know, there are some times more than others that call for the church to pray. And when we think about the end of all things, that is a time the church needs to pray more than ever. I wonder if Peter, as he was writing this, was thinking about another time that people were called to pray in Gethsemane. And Jesus goes to pray with his disciples 
And the Gospels tell us Jesus prayed and he sweat, as it were, great drops of blood as he anticipated what was about to be happening to him. And he says to his disciples, watch and pray with me, lest temptation draw near. And Peter was there. And you know what happened? Three times Jesus went back to his disciples and found them not watching and praying, but fast asleep. And Peter writes to this group of churches about to undergo suffering like they had never undergone before. And he says, be alert and sober-minded and pray. Do better than I did. Don't fall asleep lest you fall into temptation. Stay alert and pray. But that's not enough for the church just to pray. Because Peter says, above all, more important than praying? Yeah, there is something more important than the praying that the church has to do. Love each other deeply. Love each other deeply. The phrase that uh, the NIV translates as deeply could be love each other constantly. The message translation of the Bible says, love each other as if your lives depended on it. Maybe it's got a point. Maybe our lives do depend on loving each other. You know, it's easy to love people we like, isn't it? And it's possible to love people we don't like so much for a while. Peter says, actually, our love should be constant. It should be ongoing. Our love for each other should be able to be stretched and stretched and stretched and stretched and not to break. And why is that so important? Because Peter says, love covers a multitude of sins. You know, that's one of those little phrases, isn't it? That people, even if they know nothing about the Bible, people usually know that phrase, don't they? Oh, it covers a multitude of sins. If you look carefully at my fingernails, you'll see I was doing some decorating at work yesterday. And the bit I was decorating was pretty shabby. And I put a coat of emulsion on. It took me less than an hour. And it covered a multitude of sins. And you've probably all experienced that. Maybe you've cooked something and what you've cooked hasn't ended up looking anything like the picture in the recipe book. And you look at it and you poke it a few times and you think, oh, yes, not sure about that. I know I'll put a nice, rich, thick sauce on. That will cover a multitude of sins. Peter says our love for each other will cover a multitude of sins. Can it really? You know, I think there's a couple of things Peter is thinking about here. Again, I think Peter is thinking back to the time that he walked with Jesus and he says to Jesus in front of the disciples, I suspect in a manner of trying to show off, oh, Jesus, how often should we forgive people? Seven times? That's quite generous, isn't it? No, 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 says Jesus. Not seven times, but 70 times seven. In other words, endlessly. If our love towards people should be constant, our mercy and our grace and our forgiveness should be constant. This isn't giving us a license to sweep things under the carpet, 
to hide things in the closet. Actually, this is giving us a license to pull back the rug, to throw open the doors of the closet, to deal with those things that have happened. Not in the way that the world does, but with love and compassion and mercy. Yes, where people need to be challenged, that needs to be happened. Where, yes, relevant authorities need to be alerted, that needs to happen. Where people need to be disciplined, that needs to happen. But, you know, it doesn't need to happen as the world lets it happen. We don't need to spread the hurt and the pain as far as we can so that we look like we've done the right thing at the end of the day. We can do these things with love and compassion without causing humiliation and pain. And, you know, we have the example of Jesus who can forgive sins. Why can Jesus forgive sins? I'll tell you why. Because Jesus hung on the cross and paid the price for our sins. And you know, if we want to forgive sins of other people, we will also have to pay the price. To say, I forgive you, is easy. To live that out in our lives, in a real and meaningful way, is costly. Love covers a multitude of sins, and we have to be prepared to pay the price for that. Very quickly then, Peter now offers us an alternative to the lifestyle that we have led, uh, that we've left behind. Instead of the rather passive, don't do that anymore, he now has a positive and a proactive. This is what your life should now look like. He says, first of all, offer hospitality to one another. And that's what we're doing this afternoon. We're going to be offering hospitality. Please stay and enjoy the food that we're going to be sharing for lunch together. I really hope no one out the back there is grumbling about how much work they're having to do. Because Peter says... Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. You know, it's nice, isn't it, when we have friends round. Bethany shared that um, it was Louise's birthday and we had a nice Indian takeaway and a bottle of wine and Louise's sister came round. It was lovely. We shared hospitality together and it was nice. And we didn't even have to grumble about the cooking because we had a takeaway. You know, there are times when we offer hospitality and when the guests have gone, we sort of look at each other and think, oh, I'm not doing that again. Peter says that's not the way. Offer hospitality without grumbling. What does Peter mean by hospitality, though? We tend to think of hospitality as, well, having someone into our home and sharing food with them. That's a great, a fantastic thing to do. And for a lot of people, that is a very spiritual gift. That is a real ministry. I think we have to remember that hospitality here means much, much more than that. It encompasses all that it means to care for people. You know, housing and feeding people might be a start of caring for them. True hospitality goes much, much deeper than that. It means caring for people's deepest needs, their emotional, their spiritual, their physical, their mental needs. God has loved us and he has forgiven us, but it doesn't stop there. He also cares about our deepest needs. You know, in in the next chapter, in chapter 5, which Dave is looking at next week, 
Peter says of Jesus, cast all your cares upon him because he cares for you. And you know, that is what people should be able to do to us. They should be able to throw their cares onto us, knowing that we, the church, we, God's people, care for them. The other thing I think Peter is thinking about is that hospitality is one example of serving God generally. Peter says, each one should use whatever gift he has received to serve others. And then he uses a fairly unusual and a a fairly clinical sort of phrase to describe that. He says, faithfully administering God's grace in its various forms. What does he mean by that? Well, the phrase again that is used by the NIV to translate in its various forms is the same one we found in chapter 1. And Peter talks about the suffering that the church will go undergo. And it will be various forms of suffering. In other words, it will be many and multicoloured. And just as our suffering can be uh, multifaceted and there's no end to the different types of suffering that we undergo as the church, so also there is no end to the different ways that God calls us and equips us to serve him. But Peter here uses this unusual phrase in relation to our gifts and the way that we should use them. He says we should faithfully administer God's grace. You know what grace is? Grace is getting something we don't deserve. Grace is getting something we cannot earn. And God says, uh, Peter says that God's grace to us, or rather God's gifts to us, are a part of his grace. God shows us saving grace by allowing our sins to be covered by Jesus on the cross. And just as he does that, he also shows us his grace in giving us gifts. If God's saving grace to us is universal amongst all who follow and believe in the Lord Jesus, so his grace to us through the gifts he gives us are completely unique. Peter talks very briefly here about two different types of gift. He talks about the gifts of serving and giving. But I would suggest that the colour and the flavour of those are without limit. You know, a little while ago, we as a church looked at the various different spiritual gifts that are mentioned in the New Testament. And the one thing that came out that all of those different gifts have in common is they are all given for the edification, for the building up of the church. You know, we are sometimes tempted, especially when we think about those things we call spiritual gifts, although any gift, if we decide to use it for God, is a spiritual gift. We're tempted to think about a sort of hierarchy. Well, I wish I had that gift, but I've got that gift. I'm trying to attain that gift because I think it's, it's better than the gift I've got. And we kind of collect gifts like we might collect football cards. I think God's gifts to us should not be seen as being like a sort of spiritual playground, but they should be seen as being a toolbox that we can use. God gives us a job to do as the church. As individuals within the church, he gives us different jobs to do. And he also gives us the tools 
with which to do those jobs. Maybe you're sat here this morning and you're thinking, well, that's all right for you. I don't really know what my spiritual gifting is. I don't know what God's called me to do, and I don't really know how God has equipped me to do it. Let me tell you, God has made you unique. He has made you, you, and there's no one else like you. And perhaps you're looking at me thinking, well, that's a jolly good job. And probably my wife would agree as well, and I suspect I might. But you know, he has made each and every one of us different. And he has given us each a very specific job to do. You know, when I was a young child, we used to sing this very old-fashioned song in Sunday school. There's a work for Jesus none but you can do. And you know, it's so true. When we don't do what God has called us to do, there is a hole in the church. And the shape of that hole is David-shaped, or Moli, or Weyong, or Martin shaped whole. We all need to do what God has given us to do. And maybe if you're not quite sure what God has called you to do, the best thing is to simply roll up your sleeves and do something. But don't do it in your own strength. Do it in God's Strength. If anyone speaks, they should do so as the one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength God provides. Whatever you decide to do, don't do it in your strength. Do it on God's strength. Don't rely on your own abilities. Rely instead on what God provides you with. But the most important thing is do it. We will never discover what God's calling on our lives is by sitting on our backsides and waiting for something to happen. And yes, it may be that we come across one or two false starts, that we try something that is clearly not for us. That's fine. God understands, everybody else understands. But having said that, I suspect most people have a fairly shrewd idea of where their heartbeat for God's work lies in the church. The great Baptist missionary, William Carey, put it like this. Expect great things from God and attempt great things for him. We, like Peter, have a limited time ahead of us. We don't know whether we've got a long time or a very short time. It was only yesterday, wasn't it? We heard Shane Warne died, 52 one of Australia's top athletes, dead, just like that. We don't know which of us might experience that tomorrow or maybe today. We don't know how much time we've got left. But Peter says, invest the time you've got. Invest it for God. Invest it in God's work. Invest it wisely. So that, says Peter, in all things, God may be praised through Jesus Christ. You know, when we live our lives for God instead of ourselves, we do it as an act of worship. What is God's worth in our lives? Because his worship in our lives should determine how we live out our lives from him. But Peter also says when we do that, something amazing happens. Other people will be led to praise and worship God what we do for ourselves, the time we spend on our own agendas, 
our own ambitions, our own desires, is temporary. Even the good things we think we might do in our own strength don't last. What we do for God is eternal and will never tarnish or perish or fade. And it's no wonder that Peter wraps up this whole section by saying, to him be the glory. It's not for us. Life isn't for our glory. It's for God's glory. To him be the glory. And it's not for a week or a month or even just for the rest of our lives. But Peter says, to him be the glory forever. Because that is what happens when we invest our time for God's plans and purposes. Amen. Let's bow our heads and pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that whatever season we are in, it speaks to us. It speaks to us in the good times and it speaks to us in the bad times. Heavenly Father, I pray that whatever suffering and bad times we're going for, you would help us, as Peter urged us to, to live our lives not for ourselves, but for you and for your plans and for your purposes. And Lord, we think of many, many churches in Ukraine now who are undergoing such persecution and hardship. People just like us, that look like us and live lives like we live. And yet all of a sudden it feels as if the rug has been pulled out from under their feet. Lord, help them to rediscover their purposes in your great plan of salvation. And Lord, for those of us who have nothing like that kind of life, but are going through our own individual problems... Help us to discover what it means to live our lives, not for ourselves, but for you. To submit to your plans and purposes and your will for our lives. And when suffering comes, help us to focus on you, the author and perfecter of our faith. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.